Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this program is done in partnership with Share Cancer Support and Cancer Care. And the title of the program is Progress in the Treatment of Endometrial Cancer. And um, today's program is supported by ISI, Inc., and GlaxoSmithKline. I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And you'll be hearing more about uh, the um, about Share Cancer Support as the program progresses. Wonderful resource for all of you. And I'd like to acknowledge that we have over 200 participants on the call today, and we have quite a few international participants today from Canada, China, Colombia, India, Iraq, Lithuania, Pakistan, South Africa. Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So really, um, this is a global call, and um, obviously a great deal of interest in this, in this topic. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Wernowitz will be addressing overview of endometrial cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, current standard of care, new treatment approaches, the benefits of communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you, and thank you for including me <clears throat> along with the other speakers. Uh, we have quite an agenda to get through, so I'll get started. Uh, cancer of the endometrium is the most common gynecologic malignancy in developed countries and the second most common in developing countries. The diagnosis is usually made by an office endometrial biopsy. The presenting symptom is usually postmenopausal bleeding or staining. Even in the era of COVID, Women, in my experience, usually do not defer evaluation of postmenopausal bleeding. Endometrioid carcinoma is the most common histologic type of endometrial cancer and of uterine malignancy overall. Endometrioid tumors tend to have a favorable prognosis and typically present at an early stage, as I noted, with abnormal vaginal bleeding. Other histologic types of endometrial cancer, serous, clear cell G grade three, as well as other types of uterine cancer are associated with a poorer prognosis. Doctors McCann and Kerr will discuss the molecular subtyping, prognosis, and classification, and importantly, the impact on treatment. Following an endometrial biopsy, Preoperative um, imaging studies may be performed in patients with tumors other than those with well-differentiated endometrial cancer. However, most patients will proceed directly to surgery. The surgical management of endometrial cancer includes removal of the uterus, 
ovaries, fallopian tubes, lymph node sampling in patients with advanced or high-grade endometrial cancer. The surgery is usually performed by a gynecologic oncologist who has had special training in these procedures. The extent of lymph node sampling versus lymphadenectomy is not resolved. Uh, there is a mapping that can be done to identify um, involved nodes. If it's surgery, extensive disease is noted, an attempt at removing most of the disease or surgical saddle reduction may be performed. A surgical stage, as opposed to a clinical stage, is assigned to the patient based on findings at surgery and the pathology. The staging system most commonly used is FIGO, and a stage is assigned depending on the extent of disease which includes the pathologic assessment of lymph nodes, uterus and cervix involvement, and any distant disease. The type and grade of tumor is very important and is determined by the pathologist. As noted, Dr. Kerr will discuss the pathology and the importance of molecular subtyping, prognosis, classifications, and its implications for treatment. The surgery can be done with minimally invasive techniques, for example, robotic surgery, and so patients can often be discharged on the day of surgery or if it's done late in the day, they may be kept overnight. Once the pathology has been reported, a treatment plan is recommended. This is often done at a multidisciplinary tumor board, and the importance of that is you get input from the surgeon, the GYN oncologist, the pathologist, the potentially medical oncologist and radiation oncologist. In addition, there may be social workers and other support teams present. Radiation therapy, either external or vaginal, may be used in patients with invasion of the muscle wall, involvement of the cervix, high-grade tumors, or advanced stage disease. Radiation can be external or it can be delivered in the vagina. Several trials have been done combining chemotherapy and pelvic radiation. Chemotherapy currently with carboplatin and paclitaxel are the most prescribed chemotherapies at this time. However, it is important to consider clinical trials and determine treatment on the basis of the molecular characteristics, which will be described in more detail later in the call. If postoperative treatments are recommended, the option for a second opinion should be considered. One option is enrollment in a clinical trial. Clinical trials are very important for us to advance treatment and survival in patients with cancer. Commonly, the, the database is called clinicaltrials.gov, and you can get access to this through the Internet to learn about new and novel therapies. And again, Dr. McCann will go into this, I'm sure, in more detail. Postoperatively, the uh, team will recommend exams, which may be every three to six months for a couple of years. Genetic counseling is extremely important when the history is suggestive of HNPCC, or hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, also known as Lynch syndrome. There is a limited role for imaging studies in asymptomatic patients in follow-up. 70% of endometrial recurrences 
are associated with symptoms, and at that time, studies can be ordered. The COVID-19 pandemic, including Omicron and the recent subvariants and the seasonal flu, can impact the care of patients with endometrial cancer. However, as vaccinations and herd infections have become more widespread, there has been, at least in Florida, uh, where I am, a gradual return to normal care and follow-up. During COVID, the use of telehealth expanded in GYN oncology and may be used for post-operative care. With that, I look forward to hearing from my co-panelists. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Runowitz. That was really an outstanding presentation. Thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. So thank you. Thank you so much. And it really set the tone for today's program. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Georgia McCain. Dr. McCain is Associate Professor, Gynecologic Oncology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio. And Dr. McCain will be addressing new treatment for metastatic endometrial cancer, the role of precision medicine in targeted treatments, the important role of clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options, and managing side effects, symptoms, and pain in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Dr. McCain. Thank you, everyone, for the opportunity to speak today. Um, thank you for the warm introduction as well. Um, and um, as we was previously stated, I'll speak about new treatments for metastatic endometrial cancer and the role of precision, precision medicine and targeted therapies. When we talk about metastatic endometrial cancer, it is important to clarify what exactly we mean. Metastatic means that the endometrial cancer has spread outside of the uterus to different organs. This can include lymph nodes, liver, lung, peritoneal lining, often referred to as carcinomatosis. Metastatic endometrial cancer has traditionally been treated with chemotherapy. The recommended first-line therapy for women with newly diagnosed metastatic endometrial cancer is combination chemotherapy with carboplatin and paclitaxel. This, however, may be changing soon thanks to patients' participation in clinical trials. One of the advantages of enrolling in a clinical trial is having access to promising treatment options that haven't yet been approved for routine use. Enrolling on a clinical trial gives patients access to the current standard of care therapy plus additional treatment. In other words, it adds something to the best known treatments that we have. For example, just last week, the NRG issued a press release for one of their endometrial cancer trials. In this trial, women with metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer were treated with either standard of care chemotherapy versus standard of care chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, um, in particular uh, in this study, pembrolizumab was used. The findings of the study noted that the progression-free survival was better for women receiving the standard of care chemotherapy in combination with immunotherapy. This means that women lived without cancer for longer periods of time when they were treated with chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab. Those women who enrolled on the trial had access to otherwise unavailable combination therapy, but also laid the groundwork to change treatment guidelines for all women with metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer. 
We anticipate the full results of this trial will be released in the next few months. Precision medicine has also changed the way we treat metastatic endometrial cancer. Most metastatic endometrial cancers are sent for what we call next-generation sequencing, next-generation sequencing, or NGS. This means that a tumor biopsy is sent to a lab where the tumor's DNA is sequenced and specific protein analysis is performed. Then a report is generated informing us of what specific gene mutations the tumor has. Knowing the DNA sequence and specific mutations helps oncologists identify targeted therapy options for women with metastatic endometrial cancer. For example, patients with mismatch repair deficient or high tumor mutational burden endometrial cancers are candidates for immunotherapy if they have recurred after first-line chemotherapy. If they do not meet these criteria, then immunotherapy is combined with another targeted agent called lenvatinib. Similarly, women with a specific type of endometrial cancer known as serous endometrial cancer are candidates for, for trastuzumab in combination with carboplatin and paclitaxel if their tumor demonstrates expression of a specific protein known as HER2. A woman with metastatic endometrial cancer often experiences symptoms both related to the cancer but also because of the treatment they are receiving. Communicating and managing these symptoms can be a challenge at baseline, but perhaps more so during the recent COVID-19 pandemic as well as during influenza season. COVID-19 has taught us that communication is important but can happen in many different formats. We have learned that telemedicine and electronic communication through the EMR can be effective. I would encourage all patients to inquire with their oncologist about how to effectively communicate any issues or symptoms or concerns they have with their providers. And thank you again for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. McKeon. That was an outstanding presentation as well. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, Hospital Pathology Associates, Divisions of Cytopathology, Pulmonary, Gynecologic, and Molecular Pathology, Alina Health Laboratories, Alina Health Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, the importance of the molecular portrait of your cancer, including biomarkers and diagnostic technologies, guidelines to prepare telehealth telemedicine appointments, to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so excited to go into more depth about pathology and some of the new biomarkers in endometrial cancer, uh, as well as some tips about the online test results and communicating with your cancer care team online. Uh, so first of all, I'm a pathologist, which is a doctor who specializes in laboratory testing. In endometrial cancer, your pathologist is involved in your care behind the scenes. Uh, many of you had an endometrial biopsy at the beginning of your endometrial cancer journey, and that endometrial biopsy goes to the pathology laboratory where the tissue is processed into little wax blocks and cut into thin sections and then put onto glass slides to look at under a microscope. The pathologist recognizes whether there is cancer in the endometrium or if it's something else that might be causing abnormal vaginal bleeding like abnormal menstrual cycles or infection or a benign polyp. 
If there is cancer, the pathologist needs to make sure it is coming from the endometrium and not somewhere else nearby like the cervix because the treatments are very different for endometrial and cervical cancer. If it is endometrial cancer, there are a number of types and grades of endometrial cancer that are important. Uh, so, for example, a cancer called FIGO-grade 1 endometrioid carcinoma uh, is usually a slower-growing cancer that could potentially be treated with an intrauterine device or progesterone pills in some patients who have early cancers and need to delay surgery due to poor health, or sometimes in younger patients wanting to keep their uterus to potentially try for a child in the future. Now, this being said, most endometrial cancers after childbearing is complete or is obviously invasive on imaging are managed with surgery. So endometrioid carcinoma, clear cell carcinoma, serous carcinoma, or carcinosarcomas are some types of endometrial cancer, and these are almost always managed with surgery if possible, as Dr. Ronowitz had described. So when surgery is performed, that tissue is removed by the surgeon and also sent to the pathology laboratory where a team led by the pathologist examines the tissue with the naked eye and then also under a microscope. The pathology report is made then with a final tumor diagnosis and a staging report that describes how far the cancer has spread through the tissues. Something new that you might be reading about in your pathology reports and was previously mentioned is the molecular classification of endometrial cancer. So pathologists for years have classified endometrial cancer with a microscope and special stains alone. But now there are molecular tests that can be used to help provide even better information about endometrial cancer beyond what we can tell just by looking under a microscope. The most common tests are uh, now tests called POLE-E mutation testing, mismatch repair enzymes, and P53 status. Using these three tests, a tumor can be given a molecular classification. The molecular classification divides cancers into what's called polymutant, or also called ultramutated, mismatch repair deficient, or also called microsatellite instability high, or P53 abnormal, which has also been called serous-like or copy number high, and then a fourth group having no specific molecular profile. Polymutant tumors make up about 5% of endometrial cancers, so they're relatively uncommon. They have a defect in one of the enzymes needed for accurate DNA replication in dividing cells. So when this poly enzyme is not working due to a mutation, the tumor accumulates a huge number of mistakes in the DNA which is why they are called ultramutated or high tumor mutation burden tumors. These mistakes in the tumor make the tumor more recognizable to the immune system. So the thought is that these tumors are easier to treat because the body itself is using the immune system to contain the tumor. Polymutant tumors can look very scary or high grade under the microscope to the pathologist. So these would have been called most often serous carcinomas. Um, but they may not behave so aggressively as they look. Your oncologist may take this into consideration in your treatment plan if you have a polymutant tumor 
uh, or may recommend a clinical trial for you uh, if you have one of these tumors. Mismatch repair deficient tumors, uh, secondly, are similar to polymutant tumors in that an enzyme needed to fix mistakes during DNA replication isn't working right. So these tumors are sometimes called microsatellite unstable, which describes the specific type of mistakes that accumulate in the DNA and proteins of the tumor. The number of mutations in mismatch repair deficient tumors is not as high as in polymutant tumors, but they still have a relatively high tumor mutation burden and the immune system can still recognize the differences in the tumor from the body, and this can be used to help treat mismatch repair deficient tumors with immunotherapy. Some mismatch repair deficient tumors are found in patients with Lynch syndrome, as was mentioned by Dr. Renowitz, which means that there's a familial mutation in a mismatch repair gene associated with a predisposition to endometrial cancer, colon cancer, or some other tumors so some patients with mismatch repair deficient tumors will undergo genetic testing to determine if they have this mutation in the family. Patients and families with Lynch syndrome can undergo special screening and surgeries to catch cancers early or prevent cancers from starting. The third molecular type is P53 abnormal. These are usually serous carcinomas or carcinosarcomas but sometimes the tumor under the microscope can look like endometrioid or clear cell carcinoma and still be P53 abnormal. P53 abnormal tumors tend to behave aggressively, so your oncologist may consider more aggressive treatment if you have a P53 abnormal tumor or may recommend a clinical trial for you. The um, serous carcinomas and P53 abnormal tumors, as was mentioned by Dr. McCann, can sometimes have a positive marker called HER2. When serous carcinomas are positive for HER2, they produce too much of the HER2 protein due to having amplified copies of the gene. Um, so HER2 positive tumors can potentially be treated with targeted therapy similar to what is used for HER2 positive breast cancers. And then there's the fourth molecular type, which is the rest of endometrial cancers with no specific molecular profile. Cancers with no specific molecular profile are actually the most common type of endometrial cancer. They tend to be endometrioid carcinomas, and we still have a lot to learn about this group. Uh, but as was mentioned by Dr. McCann, there are some new combination treatment options uh, that are out there for this group, uh, including sometimes immunotherapy in combination with other drugs like kinase inhibitors. Um, so sometimes these cancers uh, are also positive for what's called estrogen receptor, and your oncologist could potentially use hormone-altering medicines to help control the tumor growth, especially if the tumor is slow-growing or small in size and recurs after standard treatments like chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Okay, so that was a lot of information about endometrial cancer pathology. But this information is changing quickly, and we are learning a lot about how to individualize treatments for patients based on the combination of traditional pathology with the molecular classification, which is really exciting. And then finally, I'll just give some tips about electronic medical records and communicating with your team virtually between uh, in-person appointments. So, a lot of your medical records and communications with doctors is online now. 
And this technology has really greatly improved during the COVID pandemic. If you have an online portal to your medical records, you may notice that your test results and CT scans are available immediately to you online, even before perhaps your oncologist has had a chance to see them. This is because there was a change in the law to make these records available to you right away. And this can be very empowering to have this transparency, but it can also be very scary and confusing uh, when you want to know what the reports mean and can't reach your doctor right away to ask questions. Uh, so be aware of this and work with your team to have a communication plan about your test results and be prepared for what to expect. You can often send a message to your team with questions and concerns right from your phone or computer, and they can send a message back to you through the online portal. And this can be a great way to keep in touch with your cancer care team between in-person and virtual telehealth appointments. I actually do this with my doctors, too, for my health care, and it, it really works great. Uh, okay, so that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be uh, on for the Q&A, and I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding, just a wonderful presentation. And lots of information. I think that most of our participants rarely um, hear from a pathologist talking directly to them about all the specifics that you covered today. So I really want to thank you for, for taking on that role for so many of our programs. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's just amazing. Thank you. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Nefa Tari moore And Ms. Moore is Outreach and Uterine Program Coordinator for SHARE Cancer Support. And uh, Ms. Moore will be addressing Sh uh, SHARE's free services and programs, and she'll discuss the National Helpline and website as well. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Moore. Hello, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for having me. I am the Uterine Cancer Program Coordinator at SHARE. Uh, SHARE is a nonprofit organization that has been around for over 45 years, supporting women with uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, and in May of 2020, we launched our support for women diagnosed with uterine cancer. Our list of support includes a variety of uterine cancer support groups. We have a general support group that meets twice a month on the first and third Monday of the month, a group for women of African descent. This group meets monthly on the second Wednesday of the month. And we have a newly diagnosed and in treatment uterine cancer support group um, that meets twice a month. Uh, usually on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. We also have a young women's GYN cancer support group that is made up of women diagnosed with uterine, ovarian, and cervical cancers. This group meets on the third Wednesday of every month. All of our support groups are being held via Zoom. Our list of support also uh, includes um, uh, educational webinars presented by gynecologic oncologists, and we also have a topic-driven um, discussion, which we call Let's Talk About It. Um, and uh, we have a helpline uh, for people to ask questions about their diagnosis or just to talk with someone who's gone through the diagnosis, as it can be really difficult having uterine cancer. The helpline is in operation Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
the share helpline will be answered by an experienced help um sorry volunteer who has had the diagnosis. All of our support groups and programs are free. Um, our support groups are also uh, being held via Zoom. Um, and to find out more about SHARE and all of the support groups we offer, please visit our website at sharecancersupport.org or call the Uterine Cancer Helpline at 844-582-6005 or our general phone number, which is 844-275-7427. Hope you all have a wonderful day, and thanks for having me once again. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Moore. That was really outstanding and a wonderful resource for people on this call today. And also, um, we will be sending all of you um, a survey monkey evaluation and um, in a couple of days. And when you get that, um, it will also include it is an evaluation of the program, but also we will include any of the websites or information that we gave during the program and even some extra ones um, um, so that um, if you are frantically trying to write down all this information, um, basically just understand that we will be providing you that information again as well. So th thank you so much, Ms. Moore, and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Samantha, Moore, Ms. Samantha, Ms. Samantha, Ms. Samantha Fortune, Sam Fortune. She's an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancers Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Fortune will be addressing Cancer Care's for you services and programs, and will also just give you all the information about our Hopeline and our website, and it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I'm the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling services, support groups, educational workshops like this one, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with endometrial cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by either joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member of a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific GYN cancer online support groups. The GYN Cancer Online Support Group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical, practical information about treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical teams and loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for the online support group through cancercare.org by um, selecting our services, and then you select the support groups tab. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate in the, by posting in the group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment. Please note that if you're encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help. 
Cancer Care Resource Navigation Service offers a short-term strength-based approach service to both patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the supportive services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how an endometrial cancer diagnosis can impact the individual as well as their loved ones. We're here to offer you support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this program today. Thank you for your attention, and I'll kindly turn the program now back to Dr. Messer. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Swisher. That's been really a wonderful presentation, and what's a wonderful resource for all of our participants to take advantage of um, the, these services at Cancer Care. Uh, definitely both practical and counseling services and our online services. And now we're moving on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Emma to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Emma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question, actually, for Dr. Runowitz. Um, can endometrial cancer occur in premenopausal women? Uh, yes, it, it can. It's unusual, and there's usually uh, some kind of um, estrogen-secreting tumor or focus that is stimulating it. So, for example, the uh, ovary might have an estrogen-secreting tumor, or the patient may be on unopposed estrogen. So, yes, it can occur premenopausal. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and the question from Dr. McCann, why does taking birth control pills help prevent endometrial cancer? Um, that's a great question. So, birth control pills help um, the hormonal regulation of the endometrium, So, um, and it provides regular cyclic uh, menstrual-like bleeding. Um, and by doing so, that regulates the line, that regulates the endometrium and prevents them from undergoing malignant or cancerous changes. And also, um, there's another question for you, Dr. O. Um, um, why does taking birth control pills help prevent endometrial cancer? Oh, I'm sorry, this was a different question. I'm so sorry. Um, can you repeat the new treatment for people with serous carcinoma and HER2 expression? Oh, yeah, so for, for women with HER2 expression and serous carcinoma, um, there's evidence of improved outcome when you add trastuzumab to standard of care chemotherapy, which is carboplatin and taxol. Excellent, thank you. So we have a question from one of our participants about just not being able to write fast enough to take, to keep track of everything. I want you all to know that this program will occur um, also as a, maintained as a podcast, and it will have, the podcast does have closed caption, so you'll be able to um, be able to read, as the speakers <laughs> are speaking, you'll be able to actually read what they've said, and so that may help um, in terms of the, the note-taking you're trying to take. That, so just give it a couple of days, um, and we'll have that up um, as a podcast for you to be able to um, look at the 
closed caption. And um, Dr. McCann, can you explain also um, what immunotherapy is? Uh, yeah, so immunotherapy, um, the way I like to describe it to, to help myself understand it is um, the reason why cancer exists in a body is because our own immune system can't see it. Um, and so what immunotherapy has the potential to do is to basically help our bodies, so help our own immune system see the cancer cells so that it can then start attacking it. Excellent, thank you. Um, and for Dr. Kerr, how accurate is chemosensitivity testing on tumor fresh tissue and how frequently is it used? Oh, I haven't thought about that for a while and I'd be interested in what the other two doctors on the call think. Um, I have arranged for such testing for uh, patients with tumors and basically the idea is that you send the fresh cancer cells to a company who will grow the cancer cells in a petri dish and expose them to different chemotherapy agents. Um, I'm not aware that the evidence for doing this is very good, but in, I think in the context of individualized therapy, there are some oncologists who choose to do this um, when they're, you know, thinking about third and fourth line options for patients with endometrial cancer. I don't know if there are other thoughts from Dr. McCann or Dr. Runowitz on that kind of testing. Other thoughts on that, Dr. McCann or Dr. Runowitz? So uh, yeah, I think that there was a there was a time where there was excitement about it, and it derives from uh, antibiotic testing, where you can put an organism in a petri dish and then surround it with antibiotics and see which antibiotics works. But as you heard, it hasn't really worked in cancer. Um, so I think there's just been, a, as you heard from this conference today, there's been a real shift in the molecular analysis of tumors to figure out, do they express a HER2, do they um, have microsatellite instability, uh, mismatch repair. And so I think as we learn more and more about the uh, molecular components, we have another way of sort of testing for sensitivity, but not in the old sensitivity way. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, so one, one other thing that I wanted to add about the um, immunotherapy working, I had the privilege of hearing the um, person, Jim Allison, who um, described how um, the immunotherapy works. And he started with telling a story about his son. His son uh, came to him at a breakfast table and was complaining of a sore throat, and he had um, swollen lymph glands under his um, jaw. And so Jim is a scientist, and he thought, gee whiz, why doesn't my child become one big lymph node? There is something preventing the lymph node from taking over my son's body. And from that, he figured that the cancer cells were doing just that in a, in a human, and they were paralyzing the, the immune system. And so the drugs that he went after figured this out and figured out how to reactivate 
the cancer activating the immune system. He got the Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> wow. It's a wonderful story. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, um, so let's see. So, isn't endometrial cancer tested when you go uh, go to your OBGYN for a regular checkup, Dr. Runowitz? No. Um, unless a person has symptoms, it's very unusual for it to be detected. Now, if the um, gynecologist or the nurse practitioner were doing a sono, an intravaginal sono, and picked up incidentally that the endometrial echo, the lining of the uterus, was thickened, it might be picked up at that point because if you're postmenopausal, you shouldn't have a thickened endometrium. But most of the time, because the lining of the uterus it can exit the, the uterus through the cervix, um, you'll get postmenopausal staining or bleeding. And in my experience in the U.S. anyway, um, that's been very well um, indoctrinated in women so that if they do develop staining or abnormal discharge in the postmenopause, they will seek help. Excellent. And then this question um, for Dr. McCann, I have breast cancer and I am currently taking tamoxifen for it. I've read online that it can increase your chance of endometrial cancer should I stop treatment. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. The short answer is no. Um, and some of it depends on your age. If you're premenopausal, there's no clear associated risk of endometrial cancer with tamoxifen use. Um, the other reason why we still recommend continuing it is that um, endometrial cancer is detected very early with onset of symptoms early on. So we always counsel patients that should they experience, uh, if they're in menopause and they experience any postmenopausal bleeding, even the small amount, um, that warrants further evaluation by a gynecologist. And if they're premenopausal and taking tamoxifen, then any irregular bleeding or abnormal menses um, should also warrant evaluation by a gynecologist. Uh, there's also some data now coming out that the old dose of tamoxifen of 20 milligrams daily may be reduced to 10 milligrams daily. So I would suggest whoever asked that question that you go back to your, med and I presume it's a medical oncologist, and ask them about the possibility of dose reducing. Excellent. And a question um, for Dr. Um, McCann. What are examples of side effects of pain that I should be should be reporting to my uh, care team? Um, it, it depends on what treatment you're getting. Um, so that will determine whether or not it, it's treatment-related or not. Um, if you're receiving chemotherapy, then um, some of the – and, and it's it, – Again, it's specific to which treatment you're getting, but usually we tell patients that um, pain that warrants further kind of evaluation um, or is pain that's out of proportion to anything that you've experienced before. So um, if it's unrelenting and it doesn't get better with usual interventions like uh, over-the-counter Tylenol or Motrin or rest or um, what I find is that patients with 
with cancers, they tend to get very in tune with their body, so they know when something's not right. And so um, very often patients will just call or message me and, and just say, they'll say, I know something's not right. But in general, if it's anything that is severe that you haven't experienced before and doesn't get better with usual interventions, that's always something to call your doctor about. And Dr. McCann, another question for you. What is the opinion on the latest use of immunotherapy in the treatment of MM, MMMT for endometrial cancer? If you could spell out what MMMT stands for. Um, I think that perhaps they're referring to carcinosarcoma, um, which is a, a different um, type of endometrial cancer. Um, what I would say is that carcinosarcomas, we, we categorize them or we treat them very similarly to um, epithelial endometrial cancers as well. So we characterize them as epithelial. And so uh, what I would say to that is um, that's one of the benefits of being able to do this, the next generation sequencing testing because um, even patients with carcinosarcomas, if they have um, a high tumor mutational burden, um, or if they're mismatch repair deficient, I think there's still evidence for efficacy of using immunotherapy um, for, for their treatment. Uh, unfortunately, carcinosarcomas are rather rare, um, and so they're not well represented in clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and another question for you. I had uterine cancer stage 1A and had a total laparoscopic hysterectomy, followed by three sessions of brachytherapy. I would like to know what tests are recommended to follow up and what treatments to look into, if any. If, Just if that, that's a general, I guess you could turn that into a general question because it, it sounds like it's very specific to an individual. But. Yeah, I, the, the answer to the general question is um, basically how do we survey patients with endometrial cancer? How do we do surveillance for possible recurrence? Um, and to that, I think we alluded to it a little earlier in that there's no role for routine imaging in the surveillance of endometrial cancer patients. We know that um, the most common place for endometrial cancer to come back is at the top of the vagina, so we always counsel women that, again, uh, that once they're done their treatment uh, for endometrial cancer, they should never, ever experience vaginal bleeding, and if they do, even a small amount, that's something that should prompt them to be evaluated. Um, and we don't if, if vaginal brachytherapy was the only recommended treatment, we typically don't recommend additional therapy or like chemotherapy after that. It really depends on the stage. Um, but typically we recommend uh, once women have finished their treatment for endometrial cancer that they're seen by their uh, G1 oncologist every three to six months, depending on the stage of their cancer. Um, and during those visits, we'll have a conversation about any symptoms that you're experiencing that are unusual or um, unordinary, we'll do a thorough physical exam, including a pelvic exam, and if um, everything is on the exam is normal and you're not having any new symptoms, then there's no indication for imaging at that time, and we'll just keep the follow-up visits every three to six months. However, if there is a new symptom or a concerning uh, physical exam finding, that that usually prompts us to get imaging at that time. Excellent, thank you. And a question for Dr. Runowitz. I am currently seeing an oncologist for treatment. Do I still need to see my gynecologist? So uh, it depends on what you're getting and where you are in your treatment. 
so the short answer is yes, I would follow up with a G1 oncologist, but I wouldn't do it if I was in the middle of my chemotherapy and say the counts were very low. That is not a good time to do a pelvic exam, but your medical oncologist um, is not likely following a pelvic exam, and there may be measurable disease from the vagina or doing a bimanual rectovaginal exam. So I would say that it's better to have the team discuss what's a good time for you to have an evaluation by your GYN oncologist. And it could be that you're going to get your adjuvant treatment with the chemotherapy or immunotherapy, and then you'll figure out a... a a series of visits, which will include the GYN oncologist. And a question. Um, thank you so much. And a question for Dr. McCann. I've read that most, the most common type of treatment is removal of uterus for endometrial cancer. Does that mean I have no options of having a ch a ch children? I'm sorry. Can can you repeat that question? I just want to make sure um, I heard it correctly. I'm sorry. Yes, I've read that the most common type of treatment is removal of uterus for endometrial cancer. Does that mean I have no options of having children? If you've had a hysterectomy, um, the, that means that the uterus was removed, um, and the uterus is what carries a pregnancy. So women that have had hysterectomy are not able to get pregnant um, or carry a pregnancy themselves. In young women with certain early stage and early grade endometrial cancers, we can offer fertility preservation treatment, um, depending, again, depending on the stage, the grade, and the size of the tumor. Um, and if a, if a woman has endometrial cancer and is interested in fertility preservation, then options uh, for treatment are hormonal therapy, either with pills or an intrauterine device. Excellent. Um, and for Ms. Um, Fortune, if you could say a little bit more about the support groups that we offer um, for women with endometrial cancer at Cancer Care. Yeah, um, so um, like I was mentioning earlier, we do have like um, online support groups. Um, we have like a general group, we have like a women's group, and then we also have like a um, GYN cancer support group, um, and all of them are via message board. We also have some live support groups depending on the area you live in, and then we also have like podcasts of women talking about um, especially women with breast cancer or GYN cancers that are going through similar experiences and giving their insight as well. But for the online support group, like I mentioned earlier, you just like register on our website and then once you register, you will be enrolled and then you can start posting your questions and then also you'll get feedback from other um, patients who are going through GYN cancer as well as from the social worker who's monitoring the group. Excellent. Thank you. And so we're almost at the end of the call and I just, um, there aren't, uh, any more questions? So I'm going to ask our speakers if they would just um, give us some takeaway points, starting with Dr. Runowitz and Dr. McCann, Dr. Kerr, and Ms. Fortune. So, uh, I think Dr. It's, sure. I think it's very important that a GYN oncologist be involved in um, the the management of the entire um, course of therapy. So. Um, you know, if you have a hysterectomy and it's done by a gynecologist, the gynecologist is not really trained to do a staging and then to work with a multidisciplinary 
team to determine what's the best treatment. So when the usual is that you have some bleeding, you get a biopsy, and at that point, I would seek a G1 oncologist to either assist in the surgery or take over the case and then present it to a multidisciplinary team. The, the, in my opinion, the, the horizon is really bright, and there's going to be lots more that we're going to learn, and your G1 oncologist, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist are going to keep up with what's happening, and that means you'll get the best treatment. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. McCain, your takeaway? Yeah, I would say that um, the most important thing for women with endometrial cancer or all cancers is that as you go through a treatment, you really get to be in tune with your body. So um, I always recommend that patients, you know, pay attention to um, changes in their symptoms or their body and so that if there's anything that, that is different or, or changes in, you know, down the road, then um, – then you know to kind of reach out to your physician. Um, and it's always important to ask questions. And, and again, I foresee lots of changes on the horizon. So um, just, you know, keep following up. And again, the, the role of a multidisciplinary team um, is phenomenal and cannot be underestimated um, in this setting, especially as uh, treatment for endometrial cancer is rapidly changing. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Kerr? Yes, thank you. So. Um, as treatments are getting better for endometrial cancer and we're catching endometrial cancers uh, early sometimes, you know, women who have endometrial cancer might go years um, either be completely cured or have a late recurrence um, later on. And so because of that, it's really important to keep track of your pathology records and molecular testing records. Um, many of them are online, but if you move and go to a different health system, there can be sort of some difficulties in getting those records over to your new doctor. And so if you have an abnormality that you have a biopsy of years down the road and your pathologist knows about those prior records because you gave them to your new doctor or knew about the prior molecular testing records, that can really be helpful in, in making a diagnosis should you have a recurrence <coughs> down the road. So I really recommend keeping track of those reports, either electronically or on paper. Excellent, excellent recommendation. And, um, and Ms. Fortune? Um, I would say that going through a cancer diagnosis and treatment can be very stressful, but you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of resources um, through us or even through the um, treatment centers that can help you, including receiving counseling, support groups, financial assistance. So don't be afraid to ask for help. And if, you, if there's things that you feel like can't be covered, it doesn't hurt to ask so you can see what can be available to you because the options are limitless. Excellent. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you all. This has been an outstanding program. And although we've done this program before, I have to say today's program has really been quite really extraordinary in terms of the questions asked and our, our speakers have been wonderful. And um, so the questions that asked have been asked have been great and also the speakers' responses to them. But I do want to just wrap things up a bit and just say a few words about those of you who asked a question or, or maybe you're thinking of a question you'd like to ask or um, or have a question that you've just put in queue that you know, we've concluded the program. So for all of you, I would say please take your questions, the information you learned today, back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, 
and they can best answer your questions. That's really very important. Also, um, so do that. Definitely work with your healthcare team. Also, um, find out when your healthcare team is available on evenings, weekends, and holidays, because those seem to be the times when people have lots of questions, and it's important to know who you call um, when those issues come up. Um, now, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect.